welcome to a special edition of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, coming to you today from Washington, D.C. And uh, the Professor, as always, is Peter Van Onselen. And good morning or good evening or whatever it is, <laughs> Peter. G'day, g'day, Hugh. Have you had your one-on-one meeting with Donald Trump yet? I'm sure he'll give you hours of his time, won't he? You just keep your distance and wear a mask. Exactly. I think he's spending most of his time <laughs> dialing into Fox News and increasingly desperate efforts to turn this around because the uh, the polling numbers are soft for him. And of course, everyone says, well, the polling numbers were soft in 2016. He de- defied all expectations then and polls have been wrong. Well, they've tended to underestimate conservative and particularly populist conservative uh, vote numbers uh, all around mm. the world. And And so everything comes with a caveat when you talk about polling numbers. But at the moment, there are three elements if you're trying to predict what's going on. And two of them are strongly supportive of Joe Biden. One is that he's ahead in the polls. Uh, There are so many polls here that you kind of have polls of polls, averages, weighted averages. And however you slice and dice it, Biden is ahead on the polls at the moment. You then look at the money that's being raised. And while we haven't heard the latest from the Trump campaign on the money that they're raising, uh, the the people who look at precisely money that's being raised reckon that uh, uh, Biden's camp is getting much more cash coming in. Uh, not quite twice as much, but, uh, but record levels. Hmm. And then the third element comes down to enthusiasm. And this is where it goes slightly for Trump. Uh, it's not just that he still gets enthusiastic crowds. People have pointed out the most enthusiastic political political crowds Australia has ever seen were for Labour in 1975 after Gough Whitlam had been dismissed. And of course, Gough Whitlam lost the election in the biggest landslide in history. So uh, enthusiasm is not necessarily a marker, but something which is significant is that people here, of course, don't have to vote. It's not compulsory. And when they register in a number of states, they're invited to register as a Republican or as a Democrat. And that gives a sort of a database. And where there is uh, a database of new registrations, there are more than 2 million registrations with far stronger new registrations of Republicans than Democrats, and particularly in battleground states. So some people say you should watch that because these may be people who've never voted before, but who feel as if voting for Donald Trump is so important that they're going to get off the couch and go down there and register and that these are happening in numbers which will benefit uh, Trump and and deliver yet another surprise. But um, at the moment, I would say, as we've said for some time, you'd think that uh, Biden would be your sounder bet to win on November the 3rd. Yeah, I I think think that's right. And I think with that important caveat that you just gave, uh, I think that the odds are very much stacked in Biden's favour. But the the combination of turnout difficulties around voting too, uh, and those new registrations of voters tending towards the Republican side of things rather than the Democrats, I think those are the unknowns. But I've got significant faith in polling, despite polling's supposed errors in recent elections, whether it's the Australian election, whether it's the 2016 US election, or to some extent the Brexit vote as well. Uh, The reason I have the faith in polling is is twofold. Firstly, I think it's adapted. 
uh, to some of the errors around some of those results. Uh, the underestimating of conservative voters or working class voters in particular out of the US is something that has been corrected in the methodology of the pollsters. I actually think mostly, however, and I, I'm as critical of myself as other commentators on this, I think the biggest error around polling has actually been the interpretation of polls, not the polls themselves. So you look at the Australian election in 2019, the polls had it getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And what happened is the polls uh, were slightly out because I suspect they kept getting tighter in those last two days that the polling ceased and then Bill Shorten narrowly lost. And, and supporting that is when you look at what happened with pre-poll numbers, which were actually unusually favouring Labor over the coalition compared to previous elections, suggesting that the polls were right, but they were tightening. And commentators like myself perhaps underestimated the extent of that tightening rather than the polling being wrong. And the same thing in its own way goes in the United States where in the 2016 election, the polls were national and they were replicated at a national level. Hillary got almost 3 million more votes, Hillary Clinton, than Donald Trump, but not in the key states. And there wasn't enough polling with the error that I mentioned around working class votes in those key states. So there was a, a commentator failure of interpretation of polls, I think, more than the polls themselves. And then the last one, Brexit, uh, the polling actually was accurate around Brexit because the polling did flip late and saw the numbers there. Uh, for a Brexit, which is exactly what did happen. So I do think the polls get a worse rap than they deserve because of commentator error, mine included, when it comes to interpreting the polls, which brings us to this election, Hugh. And, and I don't think that there's the error other than the caveat that you gave, which is a harder one to gauge. And polling is always more difficult in non-compulsory voting structures. That is true as well. However, it is just so dominant for Biden, including in key states, uh, that we aren't seeing that shift not yet anyway. So there's over two weeks to go. It's possible that the shift does happen. You'll be there to give us a sense of if you're noticing that, actually. Um, but at the moment, those polls haven't shifted. And that's why at the moment, with the caveat of two weeks to go, uh, Biden's looking good, including in the states that matter. That's right. And if they're shifting at all, they better be shifting Biden's way. But a couple of things which, um, beyond the numbers, there's sort of, if you like, the more qualitative feeling about how things go. Mm. One thing which is really striking is how the White House is now a fortress. Even when I was here for the midterms two years ago, you could still walk up to the, uh, essentially to the gates of the White House. There's a place there called Lafayette Park. This is the area where uh, famously uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, the journalists were all and the protesters were all um, bashed out of the way. Mm. And Trump went across to do his uh, photo op holding the Bible. Now, that was on the other side of Lafayette Park. Now, Lafayette Park is a place where Americans, many of them tourists from other parts of the United States, tourists from across the world, go and get their selfies taken in front of the White House, stand-up backdrop for journalists and so on. And you've always been able to walk up basically to the gates of the White House. Now you're, it, it's, it's not just barricaded off. It has rows of barricades within the park. So even if you've got over one barricade, you've got the next and the next. I was down there today again. They were laying in now big concrete barricades around wow. the White House. And this sort of speaks a little bit to what is happening in the United States. Uh, what are they preparing for? One presumes that part of what they're preparing for is the election result and the belief that whichever way it goes, uh, there will be either, uh, you know, perhaps if he says he's not going to go, he's indicated that he may not uh, allow a smooth transition, that it'll, he'll fight it through the courts, that the whole system's rigged at every one of his rallies. He says it's rigged. 
uh, we've got today where they're claiming that Twitter is trying to rig the election by by blocking some stories. That's that's another matter, but it, it is so heated, so volatile that they they have an expectation here of violence. I suppose mm. I went to one of his rallies up in Western Pennsylvania in a town called or a city called Johnstown, the third fastest shrinking city in the United States, formerly a coal and steel town. And it's a classic Trump country. And as you drive through this beautiful Maryland and then uh, Pennsylvania countryside, it's autumn, the leaves are all turning in the forests. You go through some very poor areas. And one of the things that you note is that in the trailer homes, kind of the, the poorest home you can have that has any level of permanence, you see lots of Trump signs. You see some Confederate flags still, and, and this isn't the South. Um, on the other side of a street, you might see better houses, and they have the Biden and Harris front lawn signs that they have here. And it's it really is a reminder of the base of the Trump vote are people who are poor and may have become poor in the last generation as the jobs have gone off to other manufacturing centers around the world, and most obviously in China. Yeah. And the resentment about that will not be in any way uh, calmed by a Biden win. And so that's, you know, I, I know people here who have got guns and are preparing for what might follow afterwards. I'm not saying they're going to, the people I know are not militias are going to go and go nuts down the street, but they're preparing against those militias who might go nuts down the street. And, and this is the America that we're in at the moment. Oh, and it's so volatile. And, and in a sense, it, it, let me bring that back to some of these key seats or key states, I should say. Uh, the Midwest, I mean, you talk about people who in a generation have become very poor. They tended to be uh, working class in manufacturing in no small part with that all shutting down, as you mentioned, and then uh, ending up in trailer parks with you know, real subsistence living in the context of what America is supposed to be. And they've done it and seen it across a generation when they perhaps had a father or themselves uh, worked in some type of blue collar job. Ironically, of course, used to be heavily Democrat weighted electorally, but now are heavily supportive of Donald Trump because of his claims that he will somehow uh, ring off America from the world and bring those jobs back. There's been elements of that in his four years, but nothing like what he promised, that's for sure. But it brings us to the Midwest, Hugh, because, you know, people forget this. I mean, yes, Hillary got three million more of the national vote last time, but that's irrelevant when you look at the Electoral College votes state by state. Where she lost the election was by just under 80,000 votes across three Midwest states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. They were the three states that she thought she had in the bag. And when she lost those states, she lost the 270 electoral college votes she needed to become president. This time around, Joe Biden is well ahead in all three, less so in Pennsylvania, but well ahead in Wisconsin, uh, as well as Michigan. And he, of course, is popular in the Midwest, unlike a Hillary Clinton figure. He has roots uh, that, that, that place him at least partly in that sphere and he's long been popular in that area as a democrat with working class roots now he's likely to get all three and that gives him the presidency as long as he doesn't lose any seats even if he loses one of those he's likely to pick up arizona where cindy mccain uh the wife of the now late john mccain who is a very strong critic within the republican party of 
Donald Trump. She's been campaigning for the Democrats. It looks like uh, Arizona will be picked up by the Democrats, and that would counter the almost unthinkable prospect based on the polls that he lost one of those three Midwest seats. And Hugh, that's before we even get to somewhere like Florida, which has been volatile for Democrats, but they're a fair way ahead and it's an aging population there. And of course we know that over 65s have swung from Trump in 2016 to Biden this time around, partly because of COVID-19. And I haven't even mentioned Iowa. Uh, We haven't even talked about Ohio and we haven't even talked about North Carolina. Now, I don't think Biden will get all of those, but you would think he'd get maybe one of them. And that then tips him not just above the 270 he needs, it gets him above the 300 to try, to go back to your point, to perhaps reduce some of the volatility. I think this becomes most volatile amongst Trump supporters if Trump loses, if he loses narrowly. And therefore, he complains and he becomes harder to prize out. And perhaps he gets support in the courts or indeed amongst Republicans who are also elected and who continue to worry about Trump's you know, dominance amongst the base, who back him somehow, that's when things get unbelievably volatile, I think. It's true. And if it's any sign, Trump is campaigning entirely at the moment in seats that he uh, won in 2016, so or states, I should say. So um, he is playing a defensive game. Obviously, if he can win all those he won in 2016, then he's won. Uh, but he's not after, at the moment, he's not campaigning in, in democratic held states. He's, he's just playing a defensive game to try to win what he can. And we haven't mentioned the fact that while this is going on, there is a new crisis in coronavirus uh, infections, a new surge going. It's up to 60,000 new infections every day. That would be the equivalent if you put the population equation into the Australian setting of having new uh, new infections of around four and a half thousand per day in Australia to give it an idea, and you know sixty five to seventy deaths a day in australia that 's not what we have in Australia, but it gives a an equivalence and you 've got a, a president there who says that after he got it, he felt like Superman a day later, and he the people who are turning up to his uh, rallies attending not to wear masks, they're certainly not socially distancing. And you have Fox News uh, carrying out his, fa- you know, obviously Trump's favorite outlet, um, you know, just mocking masks as magical thinking. And mm. the and if you look at the map of where the per capita, the strongest big new surges are happening in coronavirus, uh, they're happening in Republican held states. So, and that's as the president stands up in crowds and tells all those states, open up, open up, and gets huge cheers from the crowd. It is not the way to handle a pandemic. Um, let's take a break and talk about some domestic oh, well, stuff. Because well, well, Yep, sorry. I, I, no, no, I want to do that too, Hugh. But let me just say this before we take that break. I, I mean, I just want this on the record the first time we've talked about uh, Trump in the context of you being over there. For me, uh, I have to say, uh, the most shameful element of the Trump presidency uh, has been conservative and Republicans backing him against what you might consider what are supposed to be their values and their ideology. Conservatism and Republicans push this is meant to be about defending institutions, stability in government and so forth, including social conservatism. Trump represents none of that, either in his personal life or in his willingness to tear down institutions, threatening not to accept the result of the election, criticizing the fourth estate as one of the pillars of a democratic regime. Jefferson said that he preferred to have newspapers than government. He understood the value of the fourth estate. It was the father of modern democracy, Edmund Burke, who said evil prospers when good men do nothing. These Republicans, these shameful 
commentators both here, frankly, who comment on the US election, but particularly in the United States, the way they have kowtowed to a man who does not represent what they are supposed to philosophically and ideologically believe in at their core leaves them so shameful to me that if Trump wins, then they can bear responsibility for that. And I pity where America goes in the next four years. But if Trump loses, there needs to be a day of reckoning within the Republican Party. The John McCain half of the party has to rise up against these disgraceful fools who have left themselves and the United States and their party a shallow shell and wreck of what it once was. And that is the most unbelievable part of the last four years. People that have let Trump get away with trashing the very thing he claims to represent and something that they apparently spent their whole lives believing in as their raison d'etre to either comment on or go into politics. They should take a cold, hard look at themselves, the collective lot of them. Powerful words, PVO. They would, of course, argue they had the choice to go with Trump or to see a fatal split in the right. But certainly if Trump loses and in the dust and ruins of all of that in the Republican Party, there will have to be, as you say, a reckoning. Let's take a break because there's a lot to talk about in Australian politics at the moment. Back in just a moment. (laughs) We live in strange times and you have to wonder just what will happen next. What will change now that COVID-19 has brought so many aspects of life to a halt or altered them beyond all recognition? Is this an opportunity to rebuild for the better? In this podcast series, I've tracked down the best and brightest to explore what the future now holds for all the things we took for granted. So now what? With Waleed Ali. Subscribe on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to episode uh, 73 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm in Washington. Hugh Rimmonson here in PVO, uh, back home, of course, uh, where there is plenty to talk about domestic politics. And in fact, uh, we normally, of course, cover federal politics, but the focus uh, has been in recent days in New South Wales with Gladys Berejiklian, a woman who always turned up in a crisis, um, whether it was bushfires, whether it was COVID. Um, She seemed relatively unflappable, never seemed to take a day off. Uh, and yet none of that seems likely to count for anything, given what we've seen over the last couple of days, PVA. Yeah, look, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, uh, the, the explosive revelation that she was in a, a five-year relationship with former Liberal MP for Wagga Wagga, uh, Daryl Maguire, until just a matter of a few months ago. And I think she only broke it off, if I get the timeline right, when she ended up being called before a private hearing of ICAC. So she, she continued the relationship for years after he uh, left the party with there being the ICAC investigation and allegations around potential corruption, she continued that that relationship extraordinarily um, for politics and and even just the rumour mill of politics. It was an unknown personal relationship over all those years. There wasn't even scuttlebutt about it in the ranks of State Parliament House from from the MPs and the staffers and the journalists who cover state politics whom I've spoken to since that time. So this came very much out of nowhere. Now, he's alleged uh, to be you know, profiteering off connections and power and, and with a misuse attached to that. We'll see where ICAC ultimately goes with that. There aren't allegations against Gladys Berejiklian as such. It's more the concept that she's turned a blind eye perhaps, even if she didn't know, it's because she didn't want to know what he was up to. And there's been text messages, there's been recordings of of phone conversations between the two of them that paint her in, I would argue, a pretty bad light, uh, even if there's no wrongdoing. And I do think she's a boy scout on that front. But the turning of a blind eye is what doesn't look good for her. Um, It's it's a bit more than a blind eye, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, 
it's hard to know the exact totality of the context of some of the stuff that's turned up, but it seems as though from listening to it, as though she, her responses indicate someone with at least some knowledge of what he's talking about. And he's talking mm. about money. Um, and he's talking about the potential for, uh, for wealth to clear his debts. And, um, and she seems to be uh, not surprised or um, unaware of the context herself. Yeah. And, and, and she uses lines like, I don't need to know about that. That's in one of the Terrible recordings. Uh, and in one of the text messages, when he talks about getting a commission uh, for something, uh, she sends back the text, woohoo, with an exclamation mark, I believe. So, you know, it, look, you're right. It's, it's a little more than a blind eye. It, it's not her being immersed in it but what it looks like and this is just my interpretation what it looks like is somebody who's in a relationship uh, has a personal fondness for him and chooses at the moment where she suspects potentially that there might be something going on who knows she just doesn't want to know she doesn't want to be put in a corner where she has to either end it or dob him in perhaps uh, that's the interpretation i have now what does that say well that's not great from a leader far from it uh it, it also goes contrary to everything I'd expected from someone like Gladys Berejiklian, and frankly, uh, it would be a crying shame at one level with the things you mentioned around how well she's handled bushfires as well as the stability in the coronavirus, notwithstanding the issues around the Ruby Princess, that she goes down for something like this. But handling points A and B well doesn't mean that you're absolved from mishandling points C and D. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens here. I suspect from her colleague's perspective they're going to be waiting on two things. They're going to be waiting to see what ICAC's findings ultimately are. They don't want to jump the gun too much. They did that with Nick Griner, and he was ultimately cleared through the courts for what ICAC even alleged, uh, but he was long gone by then. Um, they'll wait to see what ICAC says. They'll also wait to see how the public reacts, because at the moment there's been opinion polls suggesting people are well and truly in her corner. And you talk to Liberal state MPs, uh, and they make the point that they can't win the next election without Gladys, whether that's true or not. Now, if that attitude changes because of polling changes and the public turning against her, then their loyalty to her will quickly fade away. One would imagine. You'd think so. It's hard to imagine uh, being able to get through to the next election. The last premier that was lost in New South Wales was over a bottle of wine. Uh, mm. You know, the sums of money were, were far lower than this. And you do expect, it doesn't matter what the relationship is. You expect this, all of us, uh, if we think our partners are straying into areas which are unethical, you you know, we would all think, say, well, hang on a minute. First of all, we wouldn't expect it to happen on our partners. But we but you'd say, you know, because we don't want to live unethical lives. If you're going to if you're going to mm. maintain a status in society and, you know, you just don't want to do it. So it was that, that's where the disappointment lies, is that. And, and, and Hugh, on that, I, I think part of that comes back to the secrecy of it, doesn't it? It's probably easier. I'm just thinking of this as you say it. It's, I could imagine it's easier to turn a blind eye and not want to know if it's a secret relationship than if it's your open and out there and known partner whom you would therefore be going back and forth on your advice of. We don't know what those two talked about privately or not, but the fact that nobody even knew um, that, you know, her and he were in a relationship, maybe she felt like she could have her cake and eat it to some extent because she had a fondness for him, but she didn't want to blow up him or his situation. So she turned the blind eye. I mean, it's, look, it's, it's a terrible situation for her to be in. Now, whatever happens out of here, this, this is part of her legacy is, is the last thing that you'd wish on someone.
That's true. As uh, former Chief of Army David Morrison, uh, the General Morrison said, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept, and uh, and she's going to be ultimately judged by that standard, I suppose. Otherwise, we've walked past it ourselves, and the community has walked past it. Uh, federally, there's a budget to sell. What's going on? I've been a bit out of touch. <laughs> well, it's interesting, actually. The, the budget sales continued. Uh, Josh Frydenberg, we know he's from Victoria. He's out of Victoria selling the budget, and constantly complaining but he's been doing that before the budget as well uh, about the lockdown there the impact it's having on people's mental health has become a factor but also uh, the economic impact that it's obviously having on the underlying numbers the prime minister interestingly because the prime minister was in canberra for sitting weeks and there for around about a fortnight he actually was not he didn't require an exemption to go to queensland to campaign to sell the budget, but also to campaign on behalf of the LNP, who are taking on Anastasia Palaszczuk at the end of October in their state election. Uh, he was able to do the, the hop from Canberra to uh, Queensland without some of the issues that he might have faced had he been in Sydney. Uh, that would have been funny, at the very least, just to watch him try to get an exemption to go there from Anastasia Palaszczuk directly to be able to then campaign against her. But he he's headed up there. He's been selling the budget as well as campaigning for his conservative colleagues particularly in regional areas he's been trying to remind them about past federal issues and, and not trusting labor he's been arcing back to bill short and we'll see whether that works a second time around it certainly worked at the federal election in 2019 in queensland but here's an interesting one for you that's just a, a, a an interesting side tip on the way through national cabinet uh, slated for the end of the week of him campaigning there on the Friday, which is the day we're now talking, uh, had to be postponed until the following Monday or Tuesday because apparently I think there was a problem with his RAF plane uh, or, or at the very least with the idea of a connection to him be, to be able to securely phone in. So he was in Cairns, I believe. Uh, he wasn't able to get back to Sydney to securely phone in. Uh, I couldn't help myself on the on the, um, on, on the circulation amongst all the political editors in the bureaus as well as the bureau chiefs, I suggested that I'm sure he could probably share a line with Anastasia Palaszczuk on her secure line. We're all in this together, Hugh, after all, I'm sure uh, with those two in their quality relationship, that wouldn't have been uncomfortable, <laughs> but that didn't happen. Uh, in fairness, she was in Brisbane, he was in Cairns. Uh, so national cabinet had to be postponed. Uh, and uh, we will no doubt hear a little bit more about that going forward, but he's been in Queensland essentially selling the budget, uh, but doubling that up with campaigning for the LNP, which I don't know. I haven't seen the records, but if you're doing both, Hugh, then that makes it easier for you and all your staff to claim taxpayer entitlements because you're doing your job. You're selling the budget. You're not just politically campaigning. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Um, while we've been talking, by the way, uh, an alert's just dropped uh, in Victoria. Just two new cases and no new deaths. Ain't that wow. grand? Uh, thoughts to all Victorians where you need to go. On another story, before we finish up, um, everyone will have memories of the day when the Australian Federal Police, armed police, went into the ABC, uh, went in there and demanded, under the terms of a search warrant, which allowed them to get extensive amounts of material out of the ABC, but also to alter and delete files on the ABC's computers. Really quite remarkable powers that were, were given. This was in pursuit of the sources of a story that was uh, to do with um, alleged uh, war crimes in uh, Afghanistan. Pointless, because the source of that story had already outed himself. His name was David McBride, and he was happy to out himself. Finally, uh, the decision has been made that two journalists were named on those warrants and who had been involved in reporting that story uh, are not to face prosecution. 
a relief for the journalists, you would hope a relief for the government as well, because that whole exercise surely was a shameful overreach and, and a frightening example, frightening insight into what levels uh, some members of government and perhaps of the policing hierarchy where they think their powers extend to into the life of a society, a free society like Australia's. The, the, the prosecutions won't proceed, but, uh, but the, the pursuit of journalists for reporting stories so deeply in the public and national interest, when the purported purpose for it being to find a source who'd already announced himself, so therefore there was no purpose, Let's hope that is not repeated in a hurry. I'd love to see someone call to account for that. I, I don't know if anyone ever will be. No, I suspect they won't be, Hugh, but I, I concur with what you say on that. And, you know, look, the only thing I'd say is in fairness to the politicians, they uh, almost universally have been critical of it, but not being fair to them, they have not made the necessary legislative changes to ensure it doesn't happen again uh, or to ensure that the even just the internal processes at that bureaucratic level are such that it is considered inappropriate coupled with legislative change. And that's, that's, that to me is a problem uh, because whether it was intentional or unintentional, and I don't want to be in any way defamatory here, but if it, even if we just assume it was unintentional, there was an unintentional bullying and intimidation by virtue of how long it's taken to land where they have. Uh, in relation to one journalist in particular, but all of them initially, uh, that becomes, even if it's unintentional, um, intimidating and bullying and awful um, in terms of the precedent and the outlook that it sets. So thankfully it is over, but as you say, hopefully uh, there is more to be done to ensure it doesn't happen again, uh, both in terms of legislation, but also culturally, quite frankly. Absolutely. I mean, it, Somewhere in here is something fundamental to, do, to who we are. Society needs transparency. We're a healthier democracy. We're a healthier populace if we have transparency, transparency in our public doings. Politicians will talk about it, but they actually hate transparency because transparency is out of their control. It gets up and it bites them. And we saw, you know, we see this going on. We need to have politicians held to a process of deciding levels of transparency which is not purely in their own interest because at the moment we're getting less and less transparency in society not more and more and that's not a good thing and on perhaps that rather bleak note um <laughs> we're out of time great to talk to you from sunny washington stay safe over there hugh i'm masked up and muffled <laughs> we'll talk soon Peter. see you man You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.